This is an emergency, an emergency. And I will. I will look at it that way. I said last week, and I'll say it again loud and clear. As president, I'll use my executive powers to combat climate, the climate crisis in the absence of congressional action. This is The Middle with Anthony Weiner. Unplugged. Welcome to episode 39 of The Middle Unplugged, a break in the middle of the week when we reclaim the microphone from the far left and the far right and try to carve out some time for a less shrill and less extreme and generally less angry conversation. So the news is some former president got indicted again or is going to be or something like that. But this week before we do news, let's do the weather. Phoenix tied the 1974 record of 18 consecutive days above 110 degrees, and they had their eighth straight night of over 90 degrees. That's even when the sun is down. And at least 12 people have died there. They could be more. They have only confirmed 12. Las Vegas hit 117 degrees. One-third of the United States, as we speak, is under a heat advisory. This week, we expect records to be broken from Texas to the Mississippi Valley. More than 70 million Americans are facing what's called dangerous heat, and 100 million are under extreme heat warnings as of Monday. But if the heat isn't your thing, the National Weather Service this morning alerted us to, quote, severe storms and bouts of heavy rain to occur from the nation's heartland to the Ohio Valley and Northeast. The last week or so, the rain has come down so hard and fast that people even in suburban Philly and upstate New York have died. Now, we know the weather isn't climate and that we have hot streaks and cold snaps. But on July 7th, the world hit its hottest 24 hours ever recorded. I'm not sure anyone needed to know that the daily average of the, uh, the world that day was 17.24 degrees, beating the old high by 0.3 degrees. By the way, that's in Celsius. As an aside here, as much as I love all things American, the metric system does make the most sense in temperatures, freezing at zero, boiling at 100. If we were to start it all new today, that's probably the system we would use. But that's another podcast. I'm sure you're waiting for that one to come out. This seems sort of bad for a lot of people. In fact, it seems like by any definition, this weather is an emergency. But is it a national emergency of the sort that we hear declared from time to time? You know, like when you hear things like a state of emergency has been declared as the residents of insert city here recover from insert disaster here. It is such a part of our civic vocabulary, but most of us don't really know what it means. What it means is that things are so bad that the normal plotting of government action won't do, and we have to act right away to help. And thus, we need to empower people and release money immediately. Usually, the people being empowered are the executive branch of government. And these steps are part of laws that were passed by the legislature to grant these powers to the executive branch. Under things like the National Emergencies Act, or the Stafford Act, or the Public Health Service Act, That last one got a lot of attention during COVID crisis, but states of emergency are more commonly associated with hurricanes and floodings and the sort. But what about declaring a national emergency over climate change? With a third of the nation having its citizens under debilitating and sometimes deadly heat, another percentage under the threat of flood, and even a slice in the Great Lakes dealing with unseasonably cool weather, shouldn't the president do something unambiguous? I hereby declare a climate change state of emergency. But this wouldn't be anything like groundbreaking. Frankly, we're sort of late to the game. At least 39 countries and nearly 200 U.S. cities and counties have done their version of disaster declarations in the face of the dangers of climate change. 
but we haven't had our moment of clarity coming from the mouth of our president, like FDR provided in 1941 on the day after the attack on Pearl Harbor when he famously called December 7th a day that will leave an infamy. Or George W. Bush provided on the top of the rubble three days after September 11, 2001, when with a bullhorn he told us that the people who knock down these buildings will hear of us soon. There is even such a thing as a, declara- as a declaration of emergency, but is there a declaration of national emergency over such a thing as global climate change, something that doesn't happen all at once, but you know happens like a slow boil? Well, I'm glad you asked. There is, in fact, but I'm not sure it's such a good idea. According to a study by the NYU Brennan Center for Justice, a total of 136 powers are available to the president upon declaring a national emergency. I suspect they did that study to talk about the broad powers, perhaps too many powers they feel the executive has. But not all of those powers are immune to caveats, and some need additional congressional authorization. Most are related, unsurprisingly, to military powers. So how would it look if President Biden decided to go for broke and declare this emergency? The big power the president would assume in this thought experiment would be the power to restrict the export of crude oil. When the law was changed to permit oil exports in 2015, it included emergency powers for the president to stop it again if he needed to. But he could do even more than that. A law in the book since 1970s gives the president the right in the event of, quote, unusual and extraordinary threat, close quote, to regulate international trade. This was used recently to bar Russian tankers from using U.S. ports. Another emergency power gives the president the authority to end offshore drilling. Yeah, he can do these things, but you are probably way ahead of me about why he might not be in such a hurry to. The way to reduce carbon emissions and the temperature of the globe is to leave existing carbon in the ground. But when you leave oil and natural gas in the ground and restrict supply, well, you know what happens to the price. Not only has Biden not been willing to do this, he's actually been going in the opposite direction and encouraging our allies to do more as well. Gas prices, inflation targets, undermining Russia, all of this argues for more, not less, oil production and gas extraction. Plus, there's the overall market happiness with the status quo today. The very goal of a declaration of a national emergency would be to shock the body politic and show we are acting boldly. That type of shock is usually not appreciated by U.S. markets who are eager for profits in the next quarter and not concerned about the Earth's health a quarter of a century from now. The politics of just the suggestion of this are pretty daunting. Just the idea has been enough to trigger legislation by Republicans in the Senate, removing the authority to hypothetically declare this hypothetical emergency and the attendant hypothetical actions I just mentioned. Those red staters are reading the same polls I am. Unlike the right in the rest of the world, only about 23% of conservatives see climate change as a major threat, and that's actually down from three years ago. Keep that number in mind, 23%. In the UK, when asked if government should be developing a realistic contingency plan for a series of threats, 81% said they should be about global warming. By the way, mention that 23% of US conservatives. 18% in the UK said that we should be getting ready to prepare for a religious apocalypse. 16% said we should be getting ready to prepare for an alien invasion. And so to repeat, 23% of American conservatives see climate change as a major threat, basically in the same neighborhood as an alien invasion. Getting back to my point, Biden has actually done more than his predecessors on this. In the 2002 Inflation Reduction Act, it included $369 billion in programs to tackle climate change by funding programs 
that, focuses on, that focus on alternatives to fossil fuels. And when compared to his opponents on the political spectrum, he's a freaking echo warrior. Before we knew he was a purveyor of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, we knew Robert Kennedy Jr. Um, about his views on this issue. We learned that this one-time environmental lawyer has now become almost a parrot of Ron DeSantis, saying that, quote, climate change is being used to control us through fear. This is RFK Jr., by the way. And that he, quote, wants market forces to tackle the problem. Seriously, who is this guy fooling by being in the Democratic primary? That actually is a subject of a past middle unplugged. And speaking of Ron DeSantis, while it looks like his presidential campaign may be stillborn, uh, his state is approaching the boiling point. Last week, 98-degree water temperatures were recorded just south of the Everglades in Florida. And his appeal to be put in charge of the country includes such in-depth responses to global climate change as a promise to, quote, rip up Joe Biden's Green New Deal. Oh, by the way, Mr. Market Forces, Ron DeSantis, the, the major insurance companies are all abandoning Florida because of what they see are these climate risks. Another go-to line, by the way, for Ron DeSantis is, I've always rejected the politicization of the weather. But maybe DeSantis doesn't want the argument for Biden leaning into this to be exactly why he should be. Maybe politicizing climate change is exactly what Biden should be doing. So what can Biden do to create the big, dramatic bullhorn moment? Well, for one thing, he can take the fight to his opponents. When so much of our 50-50 divided country is under an indiscriminate baking sun and biblical-level floods, and the cries of do something are coming from all over the political spectrum. But the efforts of Republicans have been to stop the solutions that, and that should be a constant drumbeat from the president this summer. His Build Back Better package, which was defeated by Republicans and a guy named Joe Manchin, would have put another $300 billion in clean energy spending. It would have created a carbon trading system that would use market principles to make it more profitable to countries, for companies to lower emissions. And it would have revived the power plant rules that the Supreme Court broke precedent to strike down. All of these are things the president should lean into. Will Booth of the Philadelphia Inquirer suggests something FDR-esque, a, speaks, a speech from the Resolute Desk, to set the table for future action on this, and also to remind every, everyone that it was the Republicans who stopped Build Back Better, the Republicans who have poison pills ready to go to strip the federal government from doing anything else that they can. Maybe the problem with the idea of declaring an emergency is not so much the limited things that you can do even with an emergency declaration, but that the problem is that the idea is too much about the normal gears of policymaking and how they turn. Perhaps the first imperative of the president is just to get the people out of the cycle of hopelessness and, as Jimmy Carter infamously said, the malaise about such a big thing. One audience that needs to get that message is the media. I mean, it does seem to be happening little by little every once in a while. Every so often, one of these obligatory stand-ups by reporters cooking an egg on a car hood will be followed by a local college professor talking about how the climate is changing and causing all of this. But 10% of the stories about flooding in a, in a recent study, I think it was Media Matters did it, 10% of the stories about the flooding in the Northeast, only 10% mention climate. Is it the fuel industry and their advertising dollars that chills this type of coverage, no pun intended? Or is it the both sidesism that make newsrooms think they should simply steer clear of the climate debate? That is one thing that an Oval Office address on the climate emergency might accomplish. It'll make the issue just too hot not to report. And we'll be right back with Ask Anthony. Welcome back. 
to the Middle Unplugged. This is a segment we call Ask Anthony. It's when we talk back to either letter writers that we get or people on 77 WABC who state an opinion or sometimes someone sends me an email. There's plenty of ways to reach me at Rep Wiener, R-E-P-W-E-I-N-E-R is my Twitter handle, Anthony D. Wiener on Facebook, WienerWABC at gmail.com. And I am on threads, although I have like four followers. And I think my name there is Anthony D. Wiener. Look forward to you reaching out to me there any way that uh, you'd like to and to give me feedback. But we're all familiar with one of the 10 posts of the rig election claim that was chock-a-block about absentee ballots and paper ballots of all sorts. Ballots were harvested, they said. Ballots were sent to people who weren't eligible to vote. More ballots were printed than there were people. Drop boxes weren't evenly distributed. Deadlines for returning absentee ballots were too long, et cetera, et cetera. Now, all these cases were all losers in the courts. Uh, A great analysis and explanation was done for every case that was brought um, by a group of Republican election lawyers. It's a report called Lost Not Stolen. If you're a lawyer or like reading about all these different cases, you can find it. But this line of attack was compelling in some quarters because of the visceral idea of someone literally printing lots of ballots and stuffing them in, in a ballot box Actually, the process of doing ballots by mail for someone who can't reach the polling place or someone who is out of town on election day or someone in the military, this has been around forever. And the process is involved to make sure they go to who they're supposed to go to go. They're returned by the people who are the lawful voter and a lawful way in a lawful time frame. This is as old as voting in this country. An important reminder about that word lawful. Laws around voting are governed by the states. Each one has its own rules. Officials um, and elected officials of all parties who have been using these systems for a long time without problems. And when there are problems, there are bodies of laws about how to settle them. But last week, the stolen election conversation took an odd turn. The venue was something called the Family Leadership Summit. It was a gathering of Christian conservatives in Iowa. In this clip you're about to hear, the moderator was Tucker Carlson. And the clip here, Tucker is posing a question to former Vice President Mike Pence. Why not just get rid of electronic voting machines and call it a day and then we don't have to debate it? Well, I'm, uh, I would certainly be open to that. Is there a downside? (laughs) So the question for Ask Anthony today is not what the hell is going on with Tucker Carlson's insane laugh. But it is the slightly insane question and what it tells us about the confusing state it has left the MAGA right about when it comes to elections. First a moment about Mike Pence. This, in theory, is his room, evangelical Christians. But this moderator, Tucker Carlson, and the sway of Donald Trump has made made his appearance a bit of a train wreck. Carlson had hammered him for his support for Ukraine. And by the time this question came up, Pence was surely looking for a way to the door. That's why the awkward pause before the answer. But in defense of Pence, what the heck did Tucker mean? Was he referring to the Dominion voting conspiracy again? You know, the one that led him to being fired from from Fox. The claims about Dominion machines were brought up in court cases in Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, in addition to that famous libel case in Delaware. All the venues threw out the claims about problems with the machines, and we know how the the libel case ended in Dominion's favor. But if Donald Trump is railing and trying to overturn the election because of paper ballots, and now his advocate Tucker Carlson is proposing to do away with electronic machines, what the hell is left? Now, Pence didn't have to say that. 
He should have said that voting technology and methods are decided by the states. He believes in the 10th Amendment. He knows this because he was a governor of one. That's what he should have said. But in fact, Tucker and Pence have it all exactly backwards. The best voting machines, the best voting devices, are the ones that are in the widest circulation right now in all 50 states. They're the ones that have electronics and paper elements. A machine to read and quickly tabulate, but a clear, easy audit of a paper ballot to recount. Now, I say easy. It takes a long time to count paper ballots. This belt-and-suspenders way of doing things is why they were able to do audits in places like Wisconsin and Arizona. They had the ballot that you fed into the machine. They had the machine count. They were able to check individually whether or not the, the, the counts matched. Now, Donald and Tucker and Mike are playing an unwise game when they seek to essentially cast doubt on both paper ballots and machine ballots. I imagine that that room full of Iowa voters who laughed and applauded at the idea of Tucker, of Tucker's idea, did so out of a healthy indoctrination in the idea that elections are crooked. But if they think that, don't you think that quite a few might choose not to vote at all? And if I can pull it off, this might be where I did my Tucker laughing impression. But I won't subject you to that. So thank you again for joining us on The Middle Unplugged. I want to thank Eric Salas, our sound designer and producer for helping once again this week. And I want to thank all of you for tuning in and making this episode a success. Um, if you like what you hear, please subscribe. If you have an app that lets you rate, we hope that you give it a healthy number of stars. That's the way others can find out about it. It has been growing each and every week, and so is the program I do on Saturday, The Middle, which also comes out as a podcast in a separate feed. I do that at 2 o'clock on Saturdays. That's an opportunity for you to call in and to... Um, Put questions to me directly. I've given you the other ways to reach me, at Rep Wiener on Twitter, WienerWABC at gmail.com, threads, Anthony D. Wiener, and Facebook, Anthony D. Wiener. Really do appreciate all the support you've given me and the other uh, programs here at the Red Apple Podcast Network. And this marks the end of The Middle Unplugged.